0: By the way, if you're new or a guest or visiting, my name is John Wayne McMahon, one of the pastors here. I'm I'm so thankful that you would choose to spend your time with us. We don't take that for granted either, or if you're joining us online, uh, either live or watching throughout the week, thank you for being with us. We are beginning a Lenten series. That Lenten series in this journey of Lent is called Hunger, and I'll uh, roll that out just a little bit. I'm not talking about what your stomach's doing right now, uh, but we will get into what it looks like to hunger after God in this Lenten journey. To do that, we begin with Matthew 4. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks again for your presence here in this place, and I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out once more? And God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let all God's people say, amen. Recently, I've been trying to get some things right um, nutritionally and eating and exercising. Uh, I've been pretty strict for about the last eight to nine weeks, I think. And the other day, something that I was not expecting uh, radically challenged everything in my being. Maybe you can relate to this. About last Tuesday night, I got to the point where I wanted a pizza so bad I couldn't stand it. I mean, I could see the pizza. I could taste it in my mind. And I was beginning to subconsciously get the keys to the truck and leave and go get Bruno's pizza. Amen. And I just wanted, I mean, y'all, this wasn't just a craving. Like I was getting the shakes. It was like, it was nuts. And so I wanted this so badly. And I don't know if God was teaching me probably a lot of lessons in this, but I think also preparing me for this series called Hunger. And the reason why, and the reason why we start with appetite today when we look at hunger is because this Lenten journey in this series is all about what our hearts desires and what our hearts go after over and beyond God himself. And so every year the Christian church throughout history in the Lenten journey has considered those things that get in the way and consider to what end our hearts actually hunger for God and the character of God. What do we hunger for? Because that's this season of considering our passions or those things that we get the shakes for to want to run after, what we love and where our pursuits are, what we give our time and our money to. Do we love the things of God more or do we actually love what God gives us more than God himself? Do we have misordered desires this is why we start with, I think appropriately, the temptation of Jesus, because as a representative of all of us, Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness. He does it interestingly and in very dramatic fashion with the accuser himself, but I want you to see that Jesus is a representation of the people of God here in the, Israel, in, here in the wilderness, And the reason why we think that is because Jesus here in the wilderness begins his ministry where the people of Israel's ministry failed time and time again. So if you were a Jewish um, reader or audience at the time of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, there would be some red flag. there would be some alarms that go up because uh, we as a people, if we are the people of Israel, we were formed in the wilderness. It was the wilderness where we came to know what it meant to be the people of God. And it is the wilderness where we failed over and over again. So Jesus picks up that mantle before he begins his ministry in the wilderness. We modern readers kind of miss what is being done here when Jesus ends up here in the wilderness before he begins his ministry. So I want you to see what's happening in the story because our focus will be that first temptation where uh, Satan tells him, if you are hungry, which I know you are, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responds, man does not live on bread alone. We're gonna focus on that, but I want you to see the whole story because it tells us why it is applicable to us. This story is more than just a weird sci-fi interaction with Satan. Have you seen any of the really bad Christian movies about Jesus? And, and Satan in this scene looks like some dude from Star Trek, right? It's like ruined it for me. That's all I can see when I read Matthew 4. I just see like a guy with a long nose and pointy ears and it, it just is weird. And it's more than just this weird scene. It's also more than God just flexing his muscles, right, so I want you to see that. There is a lot packed into this scene with Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness where Israel was also made a people. He faces the same trials that they faced and he overcomes the trials that they failed. Let me show you how that happened. When um, God leads the people of Israel out of uh, slavery in Egypt, he begins to form them as a people in the book of Exodus and very quick they become uh, complainers and whiners, and forget where they came from. And so the first thing that they do is they start to complain about the food. Let me show you in Exodus 16. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Translation, I know we were slaves back there, but at least we were eating steaks. And they begin to complain about what's happening, forgetting that God had actually given them freedom. And before we judge the people of Israel, we are often too quick to forget what God has done in our life. And we very quickly began to judge something that's right in front of us, missing the greater picture in the way that God's working in our life. And so where the people of Israel goes, ah, this food's not good enough, Jesus says, I don't need food. I'm focused, right? So there is a reversal of these temptations happening. If you continue in Exodus, in Exodus 17, the people begin to challenge God and doubt his power. And then the rest of the wilderness story of Exodus, they are tempted time and time again to build their own kingdom. Like when Jesus says, if you'll bow to me, you can have all of these. And the people of Israel are tempted over and over again and try it and fail. And it is just a story of humanity and depravity. This is why Jesus answers the challenges of temptation specifically with scripture from Deuteronomy because he's drawing their attention to the places where the people of Israel have failed and Jesus is going to show them what was desired the whole time and what it looks like to be faithful. So the question remains for us, are these temptations in Matthew's gospel or in, in the wilderness scenes, are these temptations specific to the son of God, to Jesus? Is it prescriptive for all temptation that we might find? I've heard all kinds of sermons about Jesus and Satan, that these are the three categories of temptation that all of our temptations fall under. And I don't know if we know that from the text, but there are some really important implications that we can pull out. First, the temptation is similar to Israel's temptation. And I want you to see a couple of things. What is unique though is that Jesus is facing down the accuser himself at the beginning of his ministry here. So when we read scripture I want to do a couple of things. First I want to challenge you not to put yourself in every story like you're the one living it. Church, you are not facing the devil in the wilderness, okay? Write that down. I am not facing the devil in the wilderness. However, Because Jesus is a representative of Israel and the people of God, what Jesus faces is similar to what humanity faces in temptation. And so we can learn some of what is happening here with Jesus. This scene becomes a representation of all the followers of Jesus that are seeking to be faithful to God. I like the way Thomas Long puts it. This story is about the kind of trials and testings that happen to people, to Israel, to Jesus, and to the church. When they are called to be God's people and to do God's work in the world, the testing of Jesus, the testings of Israel before him, and the testing of the church today are not primarily temptations to do what we really like to do, but no, we should not. They are temptations to be someone other than who God calls us to be, to deny that we are God's children. So in other words, what is happening here, what Long is saying is Jesus' temptation and humans' temptation is not to just act right to just do what we know we're supposed to do, but Satan comes and and dangles something in front of us and leads us in a different direction so we do what we're not supposed to do. Rather, the temptation story shows us what it looks like to be a faithful follower of God, to be one of God's children. And the temptation is actually trying to get Jesus to doubt his identity and who he is. And so the temptations that we might face actually challenges our very identity rather than just our behavior. That has implications because it plays out how we respond to those temptations as well. So we're focusing on specifically the first temptation this morning, but I wanted you to see the whole background here. All of these are a direct attack on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The first temptation, a temptation of self-satisfaction or self-preservation or self-gratification. The second one is a testing God out of distrust, which side note in a sermon for another day, we don't test God because we trust him. We actually test God because we don't trust him. And that's the temptation that's happening right here in the middle. And the third temptation is a temptation of power and authority, but getting it the easy way rather than the way of the gospel, which is sacrificially and through the way of humility. And so let's look at the first temptation. The understatement of the day, Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he's preparing for his ministry and the wilderness is where the spirit leads because God's preparing him and confirming within him who he is. He just got baptized and just experienced the, baptize, the, the baptism where God proclaims who he is. Now this takes root in him in the wilderness. And of course, the first temptation in the midst of a 40-day fast is what? Food. But this temptation is not just about Food. And it's not just about memorizing scripture as I've often heard it reduced to. What the devil is doing here is trying to take Jesus's focus off the work he has come to do and focus on his own needs. That's the first temptation here. Satan is taking his eyes off the mission to save and convincing him that he needs the saving. Even if just for a moment, take care of yourself, and then you can take care of this. So there's a few observations for us, and I think some of them will be challenges for us that we see in the temptation story in the wilderness. The first one, I'm gonna start aggressively. We are addicted to self-preservation and self-indulgence. It's the nature of sin in our very lives. And the early church had a handle on this, describing the passions that attack our soul like a disease. Now, when I say passion, this is what I mean. I'm quoting Maximus the Confessor, an early church father. He says, passion is an unnatural movement of the soul. It's desiring pizza like it's God, right? It's unnatural. Like, I don't need that, but I'm acting like if I don't have it, I'll die, that is an unnatural movement of the soul. Another church father says passion is an excessive feeling or appetite going beyond what is reasonable. And the way that they describe the one that is the worst is self love or self preservation or self gratification, whereby we always see ourselves through a magnifying glass, exaggerating the importance of everything having to do with self. So there's this trend in ministry where um, we hear about it all the time in seminary and every pastor conference we go to, but I actually think it's a product of the culture that we live in. But there's this trend to talk about self-care all the time, that we need to care for ourselves, that are you resting enough? Are you, are you too busy? Things that are going on in your life is because you've overextended yourself and stretched yourself. And some of that is very true and it has a lot of wisdom but y'all, we are called to be busy, just busy in the right ways. The, the people of the garden before the fall are working before the fall. We are called to be busy, but we extend ourselves in self-love pursuits like our career and how to get ahead and how to have a bigger house and how to have the best vacation or drive the better car. And that's when we get overextended. A lot of times when I'm talking to people that are stressed out and too busy, I will tell them to take one thing off their calendar and replace it with an opportunity to love someone around them. Because it is oftentimes when we are pouring ourselves out that we experience so much of what God has for us. And we, we love the story of the airline attendant that tells you to put your oxygen mask on before you put on your neighbor's oxygen mask. And I guess in some way that's good, but y'all, we are not called to take care of ourselves only. We were called to ministry with one another, to love. We are actually not ourselves in isolation. We are fully ourselves in community. That's why Adam and Eve are put there together for community. We in the church are called for community, but we spend so much of our time isolated from one another. Let me give you another example of our addiction to self-love. And this one is going to make some of us upset. But this thing has been one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in my life that wearing this would cause so much anxiety in our culture. And when I hear things like, but, but I wanna be able to choose for me and we're called to be self autonomous. Y'all, I don't know, 10 years from now, we might learn that this actually didn't help at all. But here's what I do know, if we had an opportunity to be in church and worship together by wearing this for an hour, it's okay because we're loving one another, because we are in community with one another. And yet, an inconvenience is too much for us. And when I see what's happening around the world right now, it grieves my heart that we had a hard time with this. If there's even a chance that this was helpful or that I get to be with you in worship in community, I wanna choose this. Let me give you another example. Just think of the way that we justify our coping mechanisms. Whether it's overeating or overindulging in alcohol or overindulging in stuff that's worse or time on our screen, we chalk it up to I'm just tired. I'm just out of balance. I'm working too much. I just wanna watch Netflix for 50 hours a week, right? (laughs) Because that's just how I relax. I mean, I'm there, y'all. I'm preaching to myself right now but we self-justify those mechanisms instead of acknowledging that we're running to them instead of God, and we're doing it just to hide our problems. So the first thing that we see here is that we're addicted to self-preservation. Jesus, in his fully man, full humanity, this has to be a real temptation that we face, and he is really tempted with something that we face all the time, and it's our love of self. Secondly, Jesus does not choose himself over you. I want you to see that in the story. He does not choose himself over you. He actually becomes the reverse of Adam and he becomes what it means to truly be a faithful follower of God. We could spend a series on this. This is huge biblical and theological implications that happen here. But Jesus is faced with a choice to gratify, to receive nutrients that he needs. And he says, no, what it should draw our attention to was the one who was in the garden who had abundance, everything that he could want, was told to not do this one thing to stay away from it, to stay away from it. And he would be whole and he would be in relationship with God. And what Adam and Eve do, they pursue the very thing they're not supposed to have. They explore it. Scripture shows us all of a sudden they know where the tree is, even though they weren't told. They see that it looks good and they partake in the very thing, choosing themselves over everyone else in their relationship with God there in the garden. Jesus does the antith, he does the opposite. He comes into a place of scarcity where there isn't. And instead of choosing himself, he sees all of you and says, I'm going with the mission. I'm not gonna feed myself right now because I've came for a purpose. Jesus does not choose himself over you. Third, the question that I wanna ask us today is do we hunger for God's word more than our own gain? Because Jesus' response here in Matthew 4.4 4 is one that has all of the implications for what it means to follow God. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you were to look at the original language here, it actually talks about coming forth from the mouth of God continually would be a better translation. This is an exciting word, a word that denotes continual pouring of the word of God. What Jesus says here is not just a reference to bread, but he's saying, I am with the father who is continually and with excitement and joy, continually pouring life into the world. That is where I will eat. That is where I will find my joy. And how does he know that? He quotes Scripture, he gets to the place of their book that has revealed God's character to the world as saying, this is what I know to be true and I'm gonna walk in it instead of choosing this one thing. Scripture is important, y'all. And not just memorizing little bitty snippets because Satan quotes scripture in this very text. But the difference is Rather than just knowing it, it's living it. And so Jesus goes back into what he knows and he says, this is what I know to be true and I am gonna walk in it and choose it here in this moment. Scripture is our means of salvation through God's grace. It reveals to us what it looks like for God to be about his people and their salvation in the world. It reveals how we relate to him and it reveals how we follow Jesus in this life. I wanna share a long quote from David Watson, New Testament theologian, um, but it's worth sharing. He says this, I wanna argue a singular point The Bible is a form of divine communication meant to lead us more fully into the life of God. Put in theological terms, we might say that through the Bible we receive divine revelation, the purpose of which is soteriological, meaning the purpose of Scripture is to bring us into a saving faith in Jesus. In other words, the purpose of God's Word is salvation for the world. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, believed that Scripture shows us the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. Here then I am, far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone. Only Only God is here in his presence. I open, I read his book for this end to find the way to heaven or to put it yet another way, Watson writes, God speaks to us through the Bible and leads us into salvation. God loves us and wishes us to return that love. When we do, we enter more fully into the divine life. The Bible is a book of meeting. It draws us ever more deeply into a relationship with a God who came to us in Jesus Christ. In light of this, our first should be that of gratitude. And so the question remains, if this is revelation from God, divinely inspired, Holy Spirit inspired, brought to us from God so that we might know the character of God and his salvific journey through Jesus, why is this book collecting dust on our shelves? Why? Why? I was talking to a friend this week and he is doing a, a series on the Old Testament, pastor. And he texted me and he's like, hot take, the Old Testament is really annoying. And I'm like, yeah, it kind of is annoying. There's, there's a lot of weird stuff in here. There's a lot of, thing that's, a lot of things that are hard for us to understand. There's a lot of things that God is unfolding, but when we read them in their context, we're going, why do you let capital punishment happen like that? Why do you treat women like that? Why is there slavery here in this book? Why is this going on here and there? There is a lot that's hard for us to get into, but if what we're talking about is true, then this book is given to us so that we might understand the God who created us desires for us to be whole and healed. It was given to us as a gift so that we might know the life of God in Jesus Christ and know how we can walk in that way in the world. And that changes everything for this. It doesn't matter about what you heard about how you're supposed to read your Bible. Forget that. Just do it. Just lean into it. Just start somewhere. Because this, if this is about God's salvific journey in Jesus, you don't need to master it. You need to love it and spend time with it. And the other thing, I say this all the time, but listen, in, in Matthew 4, when Satan comes up to Jesus and he says, Listen, if you're the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Jesus doesn't take his Bible and go, "Huh." when facing Satan in the wilderness, where is that? Oh, yes, Satan, are you ready? Um, man shall not live on bread alone. Like, this isn't an instruction manual for every single setting. That's not what Jesus is doing by even quoting Deuteronomy. The word has become so much of who he is. He is secure in his identity. And when he is tempted in this way, he knows that he is not determined in this way. He gets to choose to say, I am the son of God and I don't have to prove it to you because of what has been declared over me and through me. Fourth, Jesus is tempted to not believe in his baptism. I need you to see this because I think this has implications about what temptation and sin does in our very life and spiritual warfare. Jesus is tempted not to believe in his baptism. Right before this takes place, his baptism happens. He goes into the water. John the Baptist is there. Um, the baptism takes place. The clouds open up and there is a word that is proclaimed over him from heaven. And, and this is it, Matthew three seventeen. A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. One of the nuances of this temptation is that Satan is trying to convince him that his suffering and his hardship is a sign that he is not actually the son of God. So over and over again in Matthew 4, Satan says, if you are the son of God, then do this. He's trying to make him doubt what was just proclaimed before by his father in heaven. And I just wonder if sometimes we believe that hardship that we are facing or suffering or difficulty is maybe a sign that we don't belong to him. And that's not what's happening here. Hardship is not a sign that you do not belong to him. Sometimes God's silence is a testament of his love and sometimes God's silence is a testament that he's the God of the universe and he has a bigger perspective than what you are facing right now. And I just wanna encourage someone today, just because you're suffering, just because you're walking through something hard, it doesn't mean that God is not your father. It doesn't mean that you've somehow been forgotten in all of this. It just means that he's working in ways that we can't see, but you are still his and no temptation and no hardship and no suffering can change that. And so Jesus steps into his identity here and he says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't have to prove that. I don't have to choose this very thing. Fifth and finally, Wilderness and Lenten fasting, this season of Lent, is not a famished place, but it's actually a powerful and trustworthy one. See, Jesus is not in a weak place because he's been fasting. We a lot of times see that or if we've experienced fasting, specifically food fasting, we think this is a place of weakness and that is not the case. We could go on and on, but he retreats to to the quiet place or to the wilderness over and over again to be in prayer before he goes and does hard things because it's a place where he's most connected. He steps away from distractions. He steps away from his dependence on even things of this world. So in the wilderness, he is so connected with his father in heaven that he is as strong as he can be in that moment. Our journey in Lent is not about some kind of self-deprecating, famishing act. We are not giving up things so that we can beat ourselves up for God's glory. We are actually giving up distractions and things that have gotten out of order and we have started to love over and beyond God. It's our way of putting these things to the side and saying, nope, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from God. he's not saying bread is bad. The prayer that he taught us to pray that we prayed earlier talks about our daily bread, but see the order. It says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then give us this day our daily bread. The order is important. Bread is not bad. Daily bread is not bad. It just can't rule the day. God wants you to have what you need. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to have a house. He wants you to have health in your life. He wants these things for you, but when they take his throne, he's gonna reorder those things. And that's what Lent is about and us laying down those things that have taken a place they shouldn't be. Jesus is in the wilderness to let his identity take all of him, to let it take full root. And Lent is about that very journey to look at the waters of our baptism and say, I wanna walk in that truth that I am your child, that you are pleased with me and you desire health for me. And so I'm gonna put these things aside for this season so that I make sure my heart is yours. Let me close with this. Here's what I've learned about myself during this journey with food recently. And y'all, honestly, I started this journey selfishly because I was like, man, I can't even make it through the day right now. I'm tired. I need a nap. I'm drinking way too much coffee. I'm like, I won't meet with you all in the afternoon because I, I just don't have the energy for it. So I, like I selfishly was like, I, I would just need to make a change to be able to get through my work week. But I learned something in this journey, something that God has revealed to me. He showed me that I actually have been turning to food as a way of coping for stress or when I'm bored, that I have a relationship with food that's out of line and it's out of order. And instead of dealing with my own anxieties or instead of dealing with some of the struggle or the pain or the difficulty or stuff from my past, instead of facing these things, I just want to comfort myself. I just don't want to think about it. I just want to check out in this moment. And and it may not be food for you. Listen, y'all, I'm not here to talk about, you know, 10 ways to your healthiest life. That's not my job. And I'm not trying to do that. It may not be food, but it may be how you veg out with Netflix, And it may be time on your phone and the way that you do the endless scroll and it might be talk radio and it might be uh, spending and shopping and it might be vacations or it might be how you arrange time in your calendar to be out of the house at work so that you don't have to be at home around what's going on. Who knows what it is? And what I love about the Methodist movement, at times we've been really wrong on this, but that's another story. But what I love about the, the best parts of the Methodist movement is this is not about legalism. Because the fruit of the vine, when used healthily in the right setting, the fruit of the vine should lead us to worship of Jesus. It should help us to build relationships that are good. I shouldn't be able to enjoy a piece of pizza without ruining the next six days of my life because I ate that whole pizza, right? It should lead me to a place of worship. I should be able to use technology for my good and for the good of others so that it might lead me to worship a God who has created and can bring these good things into the world. I should be able to go on vacation and experience rest and joy in such a way that it doesn't become my God. So whatever it is, that's what Lent is about, is saying, what do I need to lay down? And here's the thing. God is not a hedonist. He is not sitting up there wherever begging for you to hunger for him because he doesn't need that. You need to hear that, church. That is not what this temptation is about. The temptation is for Jesus to settle for temporary gain for himself rather than the deep calling that is before him. And the temptation of self-love in our life is short-term temporary gain, even with good things, to miss the better and deeper things that God has for us. And God wants more for you and more for me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let all God's people say, amen.